This is Truth Encounter, and today as we turn in our Old Testament to the fifth book, chapter 12, Moses warns his people against a false worship that glitters with material wealth, but is bankrupt of true spiritual truth and power. Dave Wurtson, our study leader, describes a trip he took to France to meet with some missionaries. France is a land with masterpiece cathedrals, but are these places filled with people rejoicing in their salvation through Christ? Let's join Dave and find out as he discusses with us worship, who, where, and how. Lord, I would pray that we open up Deuteronomy chapter 12 today, that it would move our hearts, so that we would understand what your ancient prophet, the foundation of the Old Testament, Moses was trying to get across to his people. As we try to trace the progression of your revelation of yourself to us, and we look at the new Moses, Jesus Christ, and look at how he reinterpreted the words of Deuteronomy 12 and gave it a totally new impact. And then as we bring it home into what it means for our individual lives, we pray that you would direct us, that you would guide us, and that the human frailty of the words that are spoken would be anointed by your Spirit and become powerful words that change our lives and open us to the love that you wanted to give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's almost overwhelming just to be able to share with you how I arrived in France, and we, after arriving in Paris, the next day we drove eight hours down to southern France to Bordeaux and my responsibility was to meet with about 50 to 60 missionaries and these missionaries gathered together for kind of an annual conference to renew their strength, to renew their spirit because every one of them was involved in trying to plant strong Jesus-worshipping Bible-teaching churches throughout the country of France. And my responsibility was to teach them for about eight or nine, ten hours and to be able to pray with them, be able to counsel with them. And that's what we did. I spent a week uh, down at a chateau in France and was able to minister to those missionaries. Now, you have to understand kind of the picture of France. It's quite a bit different from the United States and it relates to understanding some of the difference between what I experienced in France and what we experienced will help you to understand what Deuteronomy chapter 12 was about. One of the things you notice as you move through the land of France is that there's an incredible artistic understanding. They know how to lay out their cities. They know how to lay out their gardens. Every single city at the center point, at the highest point, is a beautiful cathedral. I mean, most of them are in the Gothic style with the elegance and the beauty of the flying buttresses and the, the very sharp-pointed spires and just incredibly beautiful churches. And every single town in France has a cathedral. It might be a little cathedral, but it's a beautiful, elegant building. In fact, we went bicycle riding one of the afternoons. In fact, it was Sunday afternoon with a couple of the missionaries. We went up to a town, a little tiny town called La Parade, and they had one of these beautiful cathedrals. We, we went riding another 10 kilometers, and we needed a drink of water, and we went up into another town, another very small town. And in this town, we went into the, the beautiful cathedral. Once again, little tiny town, much smaller than Mountain Peak or Griffith Switch or something like that. And they would have a beautiful cathedral. And I walked inside, and the candles are burning. There's always more candles that are burning to the Virgin Mary throughout France than there are to her son, Jesus Christ. 
But I want to tell you something else about those churches. That is that very few people were there. There were Frenchmen all over the countryside riding their bicycles and working in their garden. But on Sunday, there were very, very few people that came to the church. Beautiful elegance, beautiful art, beautiful aesthetic. In fact, every church in France is over 100 years of age. The French government pays to keep up the roof and to keep it up. And so maybe there's hope even for our church. No, you know, we don't have that here in our country. But I want you to know that for the most part, the idea to a Frenchman is that church is like an ancient relic. It's a museum. We went into Notre Dame, probably one of the most beautiful Gothic cathedrals in all the world. And outside, it's elegant and it's unbelievably beautiful. It's right there in the middle at the heart of the city of Paris is the beautiful cathedral of Notre Dame. But when you go inside, it's dark, it's cold, and one of the most moving sights to me was to see maybe 150 people gathered together before one of the most beautiful sculptures ever committed. It's a beautiful sculpture, the Virgin Mary holding her child. And it's illuminated in very soft light. But people were praying. They were petitioning for Mary, the Queen of Heaven, to meet their need and to petition her son. And there was little understanding of the fact that that little baby that was born to the woman that the Lord chose, not the Queen of Heaven, but just a precious Jewish girl, a very strong ideal of what, of what motherhood and womanhood is about, but not the Queen of Heaven. And her son has grown as a grown man, he offered himself on the cross of Calvary so that every one of us could be forgiven. But he didn't stay dead. He, he's not a Christ that's hanging on a crucifix and agony and, and, and judgment and curse. The third day he rose again from the dead. And very few of the French really understand that Jesus Christ is as much alive today as he was 2,000 years ago, but he can be alive inside the human heart. And so they come from time to time. They have bazaars in their churches. You can imagine a town like Midlothian where people just gathered at Midlothian Bible Church just to meet out in the parking lot, to have a bazaar, and to be able to, you know, to sell things and to meet together as a place of congregation. But they totally forgotten that there's a personal living relationship with Christ. We also went across the English Channel, went to Westminster Abbey, one of the most beautiful churches in the world, took a very comprehensive tour through that church. And once again, you're struck with incredible artistic treasure, incredible tradition. We saw where you know, many of the English kings and queens, uh, women's lips really look into, ancient, into some of the British history. Queen Elizabeth and Victoria are pretty strong examples of the power that a woman can have over a population. But you know, they're lying there in their crypt, in their coldness, at the heart of that church, are dead British monarchs. And it's all united together. Worship and political power is all united together in these cathedrals. In fact, I heard one of the guides say, because there was, a, there was a priest that from time to time would lead in a word of prayer, kind of a generalized word of prayer. And I heard one of the guides say, well, the reason they have to do that here is because after all, this is a church. And we apologize for the brief inconvenience, but it is a church and, and you're supposed to worship God there. And so we had this tremendous juxtaposition of different places of worship. 
and how different populations of people begin to come to those places for a time. There was a time where Notre Dame, for example, in France, was the pivotal point of the nation, and political power was, was centered there. It was the unifying point of the nation. Westminster Abbey, for a Britisher, represents the center of political power. It represents the center in many ways of their culture. But in both of those places, the, the living reality that you just enjoy today, singing in his presence, there's peace and there's joy. Being able to rejoice, being able to, to talk about the joy of the Lord, all that was absent. Now what happens? What causes people to lose that reality? It has to do with the fact that they forget who we're supposed to worship, where we're supposed to do it, and how we're supposed to do it. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, which is where I want you to turn this morning, Moses is concerned as he founds the nation of Israel that his people understand who they need to worship. And he's answered that question in that, in that, that, that riveting command, thou shalt worship the Lord your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before him. The first and second commandments answer the question, who are we supposed to worship? But Moses is a realist. He understands that people very easily move away from the true worship of the Lord. And so in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he reminds the people before they enter the promised land a tremendous danger, a tremendous threat that's going to come against them. And that's the danger and the seduction of being pulled to worship other gods. Look what he says. These are the decrees, the laws, that you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. Now that's a summary statement of the next several chapters, all the way through into chapter 25 and 26. All of the rest of the book of Deuteronomy until the very end is going to be an explication of the laws and the statutes that children of Israel were to follow. And we want to be able to listen to them to understand the abiding principles of the heart of God that relate to us. He says, destroy completely. Now, I want you to notice the very first command, the very first statute that he gives these Israelites, poison them on the edge of the promised land, is this. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations that you are going to dispossess worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of the gods and wipe out their names from those places. Now that sounds pretty strong. That sounds pretty uh, intense. In fact, in Westminster Abbey, they described how when the Protestants really took over the, uh, the, the worship of the English church, when Henry VIII divided from the Pope, and then as the, as the Puritans and the Protestants began to really seize control of the nation, one of the things they did was smash the stained glass windows in Westminster Abbey. And they smashed these beautiful works of art, which from a human standpoint seems to be a horrible tragedy. In many ways it was because of destroying the art. But there was a reason why that was done. Because in, in the church before that, those windows become descriptive ways to teach the people. In fact, uh, when I was in Bordeaux in, in southern France, I was with a couple missionaries and they had wandered around and I went way up into the, into the center of the church, the heartbeat of the, of the nave, right in the front of the, way up in back of the altar. And I said, I, I said to the missionaries, I want you to come here. 
He said, I want you to look at that window. And the window was of Jesus with a crown. He was the good shepherd also carrying a sheep. But he was arrayed like a medieval monarch. Just exactly the way that you would present Charlemagne or one of the other great early kings in Europe. Next to him was another royal figure. It was Mary. And she as well was crowned. And she was arrayed not like a, like a Jewish peasant from the first century, but she was arrayed in all the regalia of a medieval monar- monarchy where power was centralized in the king and his queen. And I, said, what? and I said to the missionaries, you see what they're saying? You see what the ethos of, of what this church really represented? It's the worship of the king and the queen of heaven. And what I want you to understand is that that, that's a totally different idea from what the word of God reveals about a savior who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who we learn in the book of Hebrews that you can go directly to. You see, you don't need to petition the king's mother in order to get in with him, in order to, to get a handle on him, in order to beseech him. You see, he loves you. He's drawn nearer to you than any brother could ever be. He's a brother, even though he is a king. And in the reality, the message of the New Testament, he's not some distant, exalted king who you have to struggle to try to get close to. But the stained glass window was proclaiming a totally different message. And that's why some of those, those beautiful artistic pieces were smashed, because they had such a great hold over the people. And Moses realized that in ancient times, back at the foundation of the nation of Israel, that there was going to be a tremendous seduction into the worship of false gods. And across the land of Canaan, he describes that on almost every high hill, in fact, some of the hills were artificial. They were like mounds that were built up. And they would erect like an obelisk. You've all seen the Egyptian obelisk? Well, they would erect like a vertical stone. And then they would plant a beautiful grove of trees. It would be just a beautiful garden that was meticulously cared for. And it was their place of worship. And they would, throughout the land of Canaan, wherever there were some places, like a a big, beautiful oak tree, kind of like the oak tree at Baylor that have been there for so many years, those beautiful live oaks. And, And down in Austin, we have our Texas tree. Across the land of Canaan, there were those special trees. And at those places, in these groves of trees, in these mountains, just like in our culture that we have national parks, in Canaan they would have not national parks, but Baal and Ashtart parks. They were the high places, the mountainous regions where the beauty of nature was exalted and where you could see it and where you could feel the power, the beauty of creation. Now instead of worshiping the Creator God in those high places and underneath those trees, they worshiped Baal, the master, Baal. Baal in Hebrew just means the master, the Lord. He was the God of thunder and lightning that I've taught you about in the past. And as we've understood what the Old Testament means by this false worship. His consort, his goddess was Ashtart, who took many different forms throughout the ancient Near East. And they believed... They believed that by by entering into these magical rites, by going to these high places, and by doing perverted things sexually in this beautiful artistic setting, as they would do a lot of immoral things, 
In fact, one of the things that they did, which was incredibly tragic, in the midst of all this immorality, in the midst of trading husbands and trading wives and, and, and teenagers that would, be, would lose their virginity in these holy places, that was what was going on in this Canaanite worship. Another thing that that led to was to take their children, especially some of their firstborn sons, and they would bring them to one of these idols that was, that was made with a hollow interior where they could heat it to red-hot heat, crank it up about 2,000 degrees, and then they would take like a firstborn son, and in the arms of this stone outstretched armies, these arms that are now searing hot like an iron, they would put their firstborn babies and they would die. And this worship had become filled with immorality. It had become filled with, with, with violence. And one of, the, one of the foremost expression of that violence was the destruction of children. In fact, later on, because the children of Israel didn't obey the Lord and they never exterminated this, this immorality and this violence and this false worship from their land, it infiltrated all the people. And by the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah just cried out against these high places. He cried again. He said, the Lord God is calling for the blood of your children. In archaeology... At Gezer, we have found big, um, like big pots, these big vessels. And inside, they're filled with babies' bones. It's very hard. They're charred baby bones, and it's hard for us to understand exactly what was involved. It's very possible that there's evidence at Gezer, concrete archaeological evidence, of what from this pathogen Moses in Deuteronomy 12, and then throughout the Old Testament, what was going on in Canaanite worship. Now, I want you to put some things together. I want you to see that Moses is saying that, we, that, that the Old Testament Israelites must radically separate themselves, themselves from a religion that begins to worship sexuality, that begins to lead into violence, and that all stems when you lose the worship of the moral, ethical God of Israel, who's truly the creator, and you begin to worship the world around you, and you begin to worship nature, and you begin to live for other things, you begin to walk into a world that will eventually be filled with immoral passion, and that immoral passion will eventually flame in the destruction of children. And Moses believed so much in the preeminency of Yahweh, and as he established his nation, he said, you must break down all of those churches break down all of those false religious places of worship. The children of Israel didn't believe him, they didn't obey him, and it led to the destruction of his nation. Now you say, well, Dave, does that mean that we need to go out today and destroy other places of worship? No. You see, we are not the political people of God that are located in a specific land that, are, that swear our allegiance politically to, a, to a, the ruler Yahweh in a specific land, a specific place that has a specific temple. You see, with the coming of Jesus, the Lord has turned it to an inward relationship. And Jesus is not coming today as a conquering king who smashes churches that disagree with him or false places of worship. Jesus is coming today during this age of grace, and it's very important to understand this, because a lot of the, the tremendous conflicts going on in our land are misunderstandings of the kingdom of God within and the kingdom of God without. 
You see, today we're living in what's called the age of grace. It was initiated when Jesus rose again from the dead and when he ascended into heaven and when he sent his Holy Spirit to this world. And he founded his church in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And he's founding a church which is an invisible community of those who willingly, by faith, choose to believe in what Jesus did. Not by coercion, not by the sword, not by political power or persuasion. We want to help you in your own heart, in the pages of this book, to learn about a living Savior. We want you to learn about who he is. We want you to learn about what he's done. We want you to be able to come to a personal decision that in no way that I could, that I could never use emotional techniques to get you to make that decision. We're never going to try to put this guilt trip on you. You need to think about who Jesus is for yourself and what he's done. And then you need to decide how you will respond. And we want this community of faith, people around you that have come to that decision of faith, to be able to be helpers to you and, and people that can answer questions, but never coerced, never forced. The very nature of New Testament faith is that it can't be coerced. And so today we go out into the world to bring people, to expose them to the living reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. And right now, the Lord God of heaven is tolerating all kinds of false worship. And he isn't zapping their plates with lightning most of the time, although he did in one church in England. But across the world today, the Lord tolerates all different kinds of faith. In fact, if you don't know it yet, for example, if you're still back in the days where the idea is science is God, Everything is just reason. There really isn't any ultimate being. This world is just all there is. I want you to know that you've really become antiquated. That's the modern world. That's the world of the Enlightenment that believes that science can be the answer of all things. There really isn't any spiritual dimension to life. This materialistic world is all there is. That is passe. Did you know that? If you're sitting here today and you're saying, man, I'm a rationalist. I'm committed to the scientific method. I'm just living for the things that I can see, feel, and handle, and taste, and touch. I want you to know that you're a product of an age that's really, we've moved beyond it. We've moved into what scholars today call the postmodern world. And it's a world that's filled with all kinds of gods. And all you need to do is look around you and you'll see them. Spiritism is rising in France like crazy. One of the most powerful movements in France, this land that's supposedly the land of Descartes, who founded one of the prime examples of a rationalistic system. And now France is, is filled with the occult. Our land is as well. Our land is well. In fact, riding up in the airplane, I talked to one lady, she was reading Nostradamus, one of the pivotal pieces of the occult. Very brilliant person very well educated, and I talked to her about my faith in Christ. She talked to me about her new discoveries in the world of Nostradamus. That's the world we're living in. You see, all different kinds of religions are rising again. And also, we live in a land that's filled with immorality, and was it led to little babies, skeletons in jars once again? What I want you to realize, brothers and sisters, is that the game really doesn't change a whole lot. But how important it is for us to build our lives on this holy word of God that can protect us and help us to find joy and help us to find peace. 
And the reason it's so important, one of the great challenges that we want to bring to you, we must build our life on listening to every word of this book because this is the only way that children can be safe. This is the only way that you're going to find that the real answer to life is in your husband and wife relationships. This book describes to you how you can have a woman that really belongs to you and loves you and will be there for you and how you can make commitments of love to one another and you can generate children who know who their moms and dads are and you can have what God really wants to have and all that false religion will tear that away from you whether it's the passion of excitement and illicit kind of relationships and all the frenzy of a, of a gigantic rock concert, you're not going to find life there. I guarantee you're not. It's not going to be your ultimate answer. And in this postmodern world, a world where once again Satan has come out very much into the open and all the different false religious systems are raising their heads and calling for volunteers and, and seeking to win hearts, we as God's people, knowing the truth in Jesus, need to turn away from that. We need to reject it. We need to, we need to not tear down their places of worship, but we need to tear down any places of worship in our own heart, any altars in our own heart that are not fully devoted to Christ. I believe Jesus is my only Savior. I believe he's my only king. I believe he's my only Lord. And those are not just casual words. They are life-transforming words. And we need to tear down in my own heart, and I challenge you to do it in your heart, the false gods that so easily grab a hold of us.